You are listening to the IFH Podcast Network. For more amazing filmmaking and screenwriting podcasts, just go to ifhpodcastnetwork.com. Welcome to the Bulletproof Screenwriting Podcast, episode number 329. Why couldn't you just put the bunny back in the box? Nicolas Cage, Con Air. Broadcasting from a dark, windowless room in Hollywood, when we really should be working on that next draft. It's the Bulletproof Screenwriting Podcast, showing you the craft and business of screenwriting while teaching you how to make your screenplay bulletproof. And here's your host, Alex Ferrari. Welcome, welcome to another episode of the Bulletproof Screenwriting Podcast. I am your humble host, Alex Ferrari. Now, today's show is sponsored by Bulletproof Script Coverage. Now, unlike other script coverage services, Bulletproof Script Coverage actually focuses on the kind of project you are and the goals of the project you are. So we actually break it down by three categories, micro-budget, indie film market, and studio film. There's no reason to get coverage from a reader that's used to reading tentpole movies when your movie's going to be done for $100,000. And we wanted to focus on that at Bulletproof Script Coverage. Our readers have worked with Marvel Studios, CAA, WME, NBC, HBO, Disney, Scott Free, Warner Brothers, The Blacklist, and many, many more. So if you need your screenplay or TV script covered by professional readers, head on over to CoverMyScreenplay.com. And I was able to get a legendary filmmaker on the show. He is arguably one of the best action directors of his generation. We have on the show today director and producer Simon West. Some of his films are The Legendary Con Air, The General's Daughter with John Travolta, Laura Croft, Tomb Raider, Expendables 2, The Mechanic, Wild Card with Jason Statham, and many, many more. Simon is an absolute master at creating amazing action sequences and really fun and entertaining action films. And Simon and I have a fantastic conversation about his origins, how he was trained so, so young in so many different disciplines before he ever really set foot on a major uh, film set and how he was able to deal on his first big budget film with Jerry Bruckheimer and Con Air, how he dealt with all the testosterone on that set, how he was able to create all of those amazing action sequences with no CG or very, very minimal CG and so, so much more. This is such a fun conversation, guys. So sit back and enjoy my conversation with Simon West. I'd like to welcome to the show, Simon West. How are you doing, Simon? Very well. How are you? I'm doing great, my friend. Thank you so much for coming on the show. As I was telling you earlier, I've been a huge fan of your work uh, from the beginning of your feature world. And I, I actually seen some of your music videos and commercials as well growing up. Uh, but, uh, you know, there's very few action directors who do action like you do. So I'm excited to get into the weeds of, uh, of your journey and of your process. So first question, my friend, I have to ask you is, why in God's green earth did you want to get into this insanity that is called the film industry? <laughs> Um, well, I never really had any other idea of anything else I wanted to do. And, um, you know, from about 12 years old, it was quite serious. But I have to say, I was really fascinated by film from like three or four years old, because um, my dad had an old Super 8 um, camera and projector. And it's one of my earliest memories of him putting the screen up in our kitchen and projecting 
uh, you know, home movies and just the fascination of seeing the moving image on this screen in a dark room, you know, uh, with the, the dust melting on the bulb and the smell of it and the smell of the screen. And I, I still have that screen. And every time I open it, it's the same old smell it takes me back to like being, you know, four years old and seeing the home movies. And so it stuck with me. So when I hit 12 and I was sort of, you know, could do something about it, I got, you know, a paper round and uh, saved up my money um, and uh, bought a little Super 8 film camera. And then it was all about saving up money for the film stock. Um, because in those days, you know, one roll of film that was two and a half minutes long uh, cost about the same as two music albums. So it was really expensive. So I never had a music collection growing up because all my friends, you know, would have albums and collect vinyl. And I never did because every penny I saved went on movie film, you know, to, to make my little films. And um, so I still don't really have a music collection. I mean, I've just about started to do, you know, Spotify playlists and everything, but I've never owned physically a music collection. Um, and I guess nobody does now. Everything is, is virtual. So, um, but yeah, so it was, the, it was one of my earliest memories. It's the only thing I ever wanted to do. I sort of started earnestly making stuff at 12. And then when I got to 16, I joined a... I heard about a um, film club in the next city to me, which was Oxford, and they had 16 millimeter film equipment and they were mostly, you know, graduates or postgraduates. And, uh, you know, I went along as this sort of gawky 16 year old kid and they taught me to use the 16 mil equipment. And so I started just shooting that myself and I went out on the streets of London and into the, you know, the subway and shot things down there and um I started shooting musicians who just played on the street you know who were busking for money and I sort of combined music and film quite early on in that way and then I was sort of interested in the the musicians but I was also interested in the way music played with film and it was always very you know evocative to me so even though I never had a music collection I always associated you know music and film the imagery together and um I managed at 18 to talk my way into the BBC um, and their film department. And um, at that time, there, there weren't really, there was one film school in, in England, the National Film School, and it was really hard to get into. You had to be a graduate or postgraduate, or you had to have been a journalist, or you had to have gone on an expedition through the jungle. You had to get, offer them something quite exceptional to get in. And they only took 25 people a year, you know, which was... A, tiny amount so there's i didn't think there was any chance of getting into that but um luckily the bbc um took a you know there was one guy there i think that sort of saw a bit of himself in me that was this sort of um precocious film brat who knew everything about film or thought they knew everything about film and i certainly knew a lot technically about how how it worked and you know i could talk endlessly about film and i'd you know i've been watching Truffaut films on, you know, yeah. my little black and white portable in my bedroom from, you know, 12 years old. So I knew about, you know, different sorts of cinema out there and American cinema, French cinema, English cinema. And, um, but I also knew technically how to do it. So they kind of, you know, one of the questions was like, well, we don't usually take people of your age. You know, you have to usually be in your 20s at least to, to get in mid 20s. And they said, well, what are you going to do if you don't get in? And I said, well, I'll just apply again. I'll just keep applying until you let me in. So I, they just 
obviously didn't want to be stalked or you know hassled <laughs> for the next 10 years so they let me in and they trained me so i got this training by the bbc in every department there that was great at that time they taught you film editing um photography you knew everything about the lenses everything about the lighting how the sound was recorded how the sounds mixed um everything technically and then they send you to every department so i started in documentaries then i went to um drama and then arts documentaries and uh news and current affairs and they just rotate you around and then when you find an area that you like you can you know apply to stay there and i i ended up in drama obviously because that's what i wanted to do and i worked with some you know great directors under them but when i was there it was like mike lee was was there at the mm. time making a film who does very improvised drama so i kind of you know tapped into that and and realized how you can work with actors to get so much out of an actor um rather than just sitting in your room you know bashing out the script yourself if you actually get a group of actors together you're going to come up with something really cool um so he taught me a lot of that and then also there was the traditional bbc dramas which you know sherlock holmes or Pride and Prejudice or, you know, anything to do with Dickens or, Emily, you know, Emily Bronte, all that sort of costume drama, which are very traditional. Um, and then on the other hand, this sort of improvised drama uh, from Mike Lee. And but also I learned a lot from working in documentaries and and, new, and current affairs because doc, documentaries taught me to, to make a story out of what you actually ended up with, not what you hope to get. We'll be right back after a word from our sponsor. And now back to the show. Because often you sort of, you plan a movie or film and, and you, it's going to be perfect and you're going to get all these great sequences. But what you actually end up with is sort of, if you're lucky, it's, you know, 50% of what you set up out to get. And <laughs> then you've got to make the best story you can out of what you actually ended up with. And, and documentaries is like that. You turn up, you shoot whatever happens and then you look at this pile of stuff and you go okay how can we make a story out of this material so i use that a lot in my filmmaking you know that that sense of don't don't stress too much about what you were hoping to get just try and make the best of what you did actually get and some of it's better than you planned you know um and then the other thing i love was was in current affairs i mean i i worked on a news program called newsnight which is still running um that went out at 11 o'clock at night and You'd sit around all morning waiting for stories to come in. And then in the afternoon, the story would come in and you'd be editing all afternoon. And then, you know, you'd still be mixing the sound and everything as the show started. So quite often, you know, you were running down the corridor with the film under your arm as the anchor was announcing the film. And they were throwing it on the machine and pressing go. And it just made it. And that taught me not to panic you know, because, um, again, when you're shooting, things go wrong you know and some sometimes you're under a huge stress i've been in situations with gigantic stunts um you know some pretty famous ones on you know in films like con air and everything where i've had 200 stuntmen a full-size airplane a full-size building that's supposed to collapse and it's all supposed to happen in one go i've had 17 cameras running and it's something has gone wrong and you just can't panic and you can't you know crumble and and you, you, that sort of broadcast news as it were that i worked on taught me how to you know 
how to how to keep a steady head in the situation like that and how to, yeah, so how it's to... so it's fascinating hearing your story is that you it looks like you went through almost a boot camp early on very early on and covered almost every aspect of the tool set so you picked up so many tools that you put in your toolbox that you, your director's toolbox that by the time you started to actually direct you you'd been doing it in a sense for a long time these skills like the broadcast news which which doesn't specifically you know translate the cinema but yes it does translate the cinema so it kind of you were kind of being groomed you know by the universe if you will to to do the kind of films that you are doing have been doing throughout your career yeah i you know i was very lucky in that sense that i i did end up and it wasn't just then it was later when i went um, through music videos for a little bit, and then commercials, particularly, which then gave me another set of skill sets and experience. And, and it's flying hours. You know, there's that old adage, you know, you, you, to be an expert, you have to do something for 10,000 hours. And so if you can arrive on set, you know, with 10, 20, 30, 50,000 hours of flying time, you're going to be in a much better position. I mean, I, I started in editing, which is particularly lucky, because that is definitely a great learning for directors how to construct the story and how what do you actually need and how you can cheat and how you can um you know give yourself some slack and not have to shoot every single thing you think you need because you know in editing you can you can help and so editing was definitely a great start and then um you know when i went as i said those there's various you know uh, bbc um situations was that one set of experience but then when i went into commercials um you know that's working at a very high level all over the world so i'd be up a mountain you know one day then i'd be underwater the next i'd be um you know hanging out of a helicopter or racing cars or and then um i sort of moved towards um i i, I guess what it was I, I i particularly look how do i get into feature films it was like so I looked for role models. And so in, the, in, in England, all the big directors went through commercials. So it was Ridley Scott, Tony Scott, um, Hugh Hudson, Adrian Lyne, um, Alan Parker, all these guys who ended up making films in, in England and then Hollywood um, had gone through commercials. And so I deliberately targeted commercials to, because it was a very high-end kind of training. And, and especially in England, they're very kind of big-budget, glossy, um, very well made, often better made than the shows in between them. You know, at that <laughs> stage, you know, TV was very cheap and cheerful in those days uh, in the UK, but the commercials were very high end. Um, you know, it's caught up now, of course, you know, and TV is as 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 good as movies, if not better sometimes. But um, so I, I targeted those type of people and that type of thing. So I ended up... Uh, making a test commercial, I shot. I, I deliberately shot a music video for a band, and I put in. I put in a little story in it. So I had to do the typical playing the instruments, and I was never, a, you know, a big uh, music video um, director. It was really, a, you know, a way of paying the bills while I got into commercials and then and then into movies. But so I deliberately made this little story in the in the music video, and then after I'd done that, I, I took it out and I cut it down into a test commercial and i had this uh, you know test commercial that i which i sort of took with me when i got on the plane to the states and um the company i was working with in london had an la office and they said do you want to try and work out through the la office because 
there was no work in the UK at that time. It was absolutely dead. So I went over with sort of $400 in my pocket and this fake commercial and started, you know, touting it around. And it sort of started to get interest. And by sheer coincidence, um, it was sort of comedic. It was a funny, it was a fake um, comedy beer commercial. And so then I started just getting offered um, comedy, which was very convenient in a way because it was it was the commercials that had actors dialogue it wasn't just cars driving through pretty forests and mountains or models on the beach it was you know it was a little story in itself so i could practice my my art and so i just started doing uh comedy commercials and they got you know bigger and bigger and then um ended up sort of doing super bowl commercials for you know the budweiser's so like Budweiser Frogs and then the um, Pepsi commercials and they started to get a lot more attention. And, you know, these were, you know, they're big budget, you know, they were spending about as much as, a, you know, an independent, little independent film on these 30 second commercials. So again, you know, I got used to having the big toys as it were, but it still wasn't a movie, you know, it's still only 30 seconds. It's still not a movie. So I'm still desperate and hungry to get into the, you know, legitimate filmmaking. And, and of course, um, with the, with the high profile, um, Super Bowl commercials, I started getting calls from the studios. And, um, so I got a call from, uh, Columbia offering me a romantic comedy because they obviously thought, oh, well, he does comedy. So, um, we'll do that. And then I got a spy thriller from a, a UK company and then I got the call from Jerry Bruckheimer, you know, <laughs> who said, you know, I've seen your commercials, are really impressed, and uh, come in for a meeting, and let's, you know, talk about possibly making a film together. And so, of course, I, you know, rushed into that and had the big meeting with Jerry, you know, on the giant desk, you know, and uh, the, you know, in some ways, the rest is history. But it was, it was, uh, you know, it was an awesome meeting, and I had to. He basically had a wall of scripts behind him it was in the days when scripts were printed on paper and every producer would have a stack of them in their office with the titles written but jerry didn't have just a pile he had a wall of them you know it's probably a couple of thousand scripts and he turned around and he pulled three off which i it looked like it was random but i'm sure he knew exactly which one <laughs> he was pulling off and he threw them across the desk and said look read those this weekend and tell me which one of the one you want to make as a movie and uh two of them were um, so, well, they were all action films, basically, because that's what Jerry did. You know, he did he did those type of films. Two of them were pretty straightforward. You know, uh, I felt you know a bit cliched kind of action movies. But the third one was a was a film called Con Air, and I read this, and it was quite a small film. It was like a character driven film, but the characters were so good, and even the names of the characters were cool, like <laughs> Sally Can't Dance and Cyrus the Virus, and you know. Um, you know, uh, they, it just hooked me right just for reading that. I would have done it just for the name of the characters, basically. Um, <laughs> and so I, I went back and I, you know, I turned down the romantic comedy. I turned down the uh, spy thriller. And I said to Jerry, look, I, I, out of these three, I want to make Con Air. And he said, well, it's a, you know, it's a very small film and we need a summer blockbuster. So you've got to go away and turn this small character film. Because it was written by Scott Rosenberg, who right. did, you know, things to do in Denver when you're dead and beautiful girls, which were fantastic, but very small, you know, beautifully made, you know, um, character. 
We'll be right back after a word from our sponsor. And now back to the show. Uh, based films. And this was the same thing. And Jerry wanted a summer blockbuster. So I had to go away and sort of invent all these big events and sort of blow them up and make them you know, larger than life. And just every couple of weeks I'd go in, he said, you know, you've got to make it bigger, make it bigger. And so I just, you know, had a field day just going in and sort of say, okay, how can we make this thing even bigger and more ridiculous than it was before? And, uh, and that's, that's what you ended up with. That's why Con Air looks like that. <laughs> no, it's fascinating. Con Air is one of those films that it's just one of those movies that sticks, it sticks with you for, I mean, especially of that generation when it came out, I saw it in the theater and, and it's, it's, you know, it's it built a life up upon its own over the years. And, uh, you know, there's, there's so many legendary stories I hear. I heard, I heard Danny Trejo, uh, I, I was watching a doc, a recent documentary with him and there was a story of him being on set with Con Air and there was a, obviously a lot of testosterone on that set a <laughs> lot, lot of testosterone and all the actors are trying to you know like oh, i'm super tough and i'm super tough and i'm super tough and danny was quiet in the corner and nicholas cage came up to the group because it was all of them sitting around trying to one up each other and how tough they are and how scary they were in real life and mm. nicholas cage came up and goes the only one i'm scared of is danny and danny hadn't said a word and then yeah. he's like, what I do? what I do? He goes, it was that look that he had. <laughs> Things like yeah, that. Yeah, yeah, yeah. How, but how you, I was going to say, ironically, uh, Danny was like the sweetest, yeah, sweetest guy of the whole group to deal with. You know, it was like an inverse proportion. Like the, the tougher you were, the nicer you were. You know, and it was, uh, it was, <laughs> it was all the, the guys that had never been near a prison were the, uh, the ones that were. Or a fight, or even a fight for that matter. Yeah, I mean, anything, <laughs> but you know, but you can imagine just there were 400 men in the oh. desert for like three months. And I think there were like at that time, there was only two women on the crew. And it, you know, so it did go a bit crazy because, you know, you get 400 guys in the desert with nothing to do and the sun beating down on you. Um, everyone did go a little bit apocalypse now. Now, how did you, how, and how do you, you know, on a film like that? You know, it's your first big Hollywood production. You're working with Jerry Bruckheimer. This is your dream shot. So I'm assuming there's some pressure on you. Yeah, you've got 50,000 <laughs> 50, hours. you got 50,000 hours of airtime. There's no question, but you're at the show. This is the show at this point in your career. And if this fails, yeah, it's over. It's over. Absolutely. Well, I, I mean, I, I had done 50,000 hours, but short hops, you know, between, <laughs> you know, local, local flights that were, you know, the longest shoot I'd been doing was, you know, two days, three days. Oh. This, this was a hundred day shoot. And so by day 30, I was, you know, down and out, I'd hit the wall. I was like 30 days of, because it was a giant production. And, um, you know, I, I was naive. I went in thinking, oh, this is, this is completely doable. And it was around day 30 that I just went, I'm not sure if I can make it to the end. But, you know, after a while, you sort of buckle down and, and it becomes a day job. And you, and you start to think, this, is, this will never end anyway. I'm just going to do this every day for the rest of my life. It's so long. And there's so much work <laughs> to do that it's a very odd when it finishes because you, you suddenly take it by surprise. But, yeah, there was a lot of pressure. I didn't realize that because um, I was naive to, you know, move, you know, Hollywood and films that they have, the studio has a list of your replacements um, already drawn up before you, when you start filming. So if in the first two weeks you completely screw it up, 
they already know who they're going to go to replace you with. Um, really? Yeah. <laughs> I only found I mean, that out afterwards. But, I, you know, I would be, uh, I would have felt even more pressure about that. But, I mean, you know, they, they protect you from that, so they don't want to, you know, completely crush you. So, right. you know, but it was tough getting people to take you seriously with the first film of that size because mm. some crew members I had worked with in commercials, you know, so they knew that I sort of knew what I was doing. But a lot of them, you know, was like, who is this guy they've given this massive film to on the first thing? So a lot of the people I did have to, you know, come up against and go, you know, well, this is, is what's happening. And, you know, uh, you know, I'm, this is my first film, but you, have, you basically have to follow the orders because they've given me this responsibility and we are doing this. And so I'd say, you know, 50% of people were very supportive and then 50% were a little tougher. <laughs> really? Yeah, and that's, and that's something that a lot of <clears throat> for directors, <clears throat> excuse me, uh, directors don't understand when they first get on set is that when, you know, I remember being the youngest guy on set as a director mm. uh, and, I, and, and, you know, the DP is 20 years older than me or the grips are 20 years older than me or the production. Mm. And they, and they all have this experience and they test you and they, and a lot of them, they just feel like, oh, this kid doesn't deserve this shot, mm -hmm. things like that. So I can only imagine at your level, the kind mm -hmm. of, I mean, this was a lottery ticket. Someone literally handed you, Jerry handed you a lottery ticket and, and I'm sure you had to deal with it. How do you overcome those egos on set, those, that, that, those kind of barriers when you're working with crew members, maybe even keys, you know, mm -hmm. like your DP or like your production designer or, or you know, keys who are fighting against your vision as a director. How do you handle that? Well, luckily, I, I mean, I didn't have that situation because I, you know, I, I brought my own DP, my own production designer. And so my core uh, crew um, were people I knew and trusted and supported Good. me. And it was, it was more the peripherals that were, you know, you, you'd come up against. But um, I, all I could do was do a professional job and, and also don't, don't have any ego because you know i think that's what gets people's back up is if they sense that, that what you're doing or what your your decisions are based on ego rather than what's best for the film basically everybody there is a passionate filmmaker and wants the best film possible and you know th that's why people go into the film business is because they're they're really interested in it and i was you know i loved the idea when i did a big complicated crane shot you know and it took a while to get that I'd run over to the monitor to see how it went. But, and I'd look around and there'd be 20 people looking over my shoulder because, you know, the grips wanted to see if they did a good job. The camera focus wanted to see if he did a good job. And, and everybody, you know, actors came in to see what they had done. So everybody basically wants to do a really good job. So if, if they sense that you're the same and you're just there to make the best film, then they, they forget whether you've done five films or no films. And, and uh, it's only if, you, if a director brings this ego on set and and is trying to demand respect through you know position or you know and and it's just flexing muscles and usually you know it's a it's a cover for you know, insecurity i think you know right. when they they're panicking and they don't know what they're doing and it comes out as ego and it's the same with difficult actors um usually i found that actors are that are really talented and luckily you know i came in at a very high level so i'm I'm dealing with, you know, people that have won Oscars and have got 30 years of experience and have done, and these people are very talented and operating at a very high level in their field. And when people are good at something, they're usually very secure in it. And, yeah. and so they're, they're not, 
um, you, you know, they don't, they're not difficult. It's, it's usually when someone's very insecure in what they do and, and think they're faking it or they think they're not very good that they end up being a problem because they're sort of diverting attention from what they think is their failing. So I haven't, you know, had a problem like that with, with all those big guys, you know, whether it was Nick Cage or John Malkovich or John Cusack, all those guys, I didn't have a problem at all because they were very good at what they did. And so they were very comfortable in playing in that world. And also we created a really, you know, it was a fun, it was a fun film to make because, you know, you get to say those great lines and <laughs> all these actors, which basically independent Films, they, you know, they were used to doing costume dramas or little indies in motel rooms, and suddenly they're on this giant film set, and Malkovich has got a pump-action shotgun in his hand and is shouting, you know, crazy lines, and they're having the time of their life. So why would you be? And also, they're being paid four times more than they've ever been paid because, you know, Jerry's got the the massive checkbook. So that's how I ended up with such a great cast is because Jerry just said, just pick all your favorite actors. And when you've got that huge, you know, big brother of him and the studio behind you, you can, no one can say no, really, because um, it's a really fun, you know, enterprise. It's great script and they're being paid handsomely. Everybody is there, you know, for a very good reason. They're having a really good time. So it, it wasn't as bad as people think, like suddenly you've got 20 big actors. They're all going to be a complete pain in the ass. You know, occasionally one person has a bad day or, something sure. like we all do but generally speaking you know that everyone was enjoying it and uh um you know i mean it's the waiting around to be honest the work is never the problem it's the way that's when people get oh do i have to wait another you know for this lighting or this set or the stunt to be set up the actual acting they love to do so as long as you can you know Keep give them coming. enough acting to do they're they're happy We'll be right back after a word from our sponsor. And now back to the show. So I have to ask you, there's one scene in Conair that I, there's many, but there's one that I really have to ask you. This is a stunt. And I, I think, it, I, I, I know it's practical, but I have to ask how the hell you did it, which is the plane dragging the Corvette in the air and smashing into the tower. Yeah, was that, well, that me, was that's practical, right? Yes, it, it, mostly because the thing is that you know, kind of remember when it was made, there was CG around, but it was but, very expensive, and it was like you know, it was, it was only Jurassic Park or and people like that could afford it, and or to make it look good. And and I was always a you know a devotee of doing it for real and in front of the camera and seeing it, and so there's almost no CGI in. It's all done in front of the camera, either full scale or we did do quite old school miniatures. Yeah, so which was a lot, yeah, a lot of fun. So, um, you know, we did we flew a real plane over Vegas with smoke pouring out the back of it, and there were endless phone calls to you know the police of people saying there's a plane crashing over <laughs> Vegas. So it flew over and it's and it's uh, you know smoke pouring out of it. So you know we did things like that for real, and then um, we actually did. Uh, for the you know hitting the hard rock, that was a massive model. So this beautiful scale model that was probably thirty feet across uh, of this plane uh, into a you know a thirty fifty foot version of the hard rock guitar, and we built the whole Vegas Strip in miniature on Van Nuys Airport. So you know we had all the buildings with miniature neons, and they're all about you know twelve feet high, 
and we had radio control cars going up and down the strip. Such and then it's fun. Oh, it's, I mean, it was absolute, you know, right for a, a you know kid in a sandbox kind of feel. And then a lot of it was real. We had a plane that uh, actually drove down Vegas Strip. It had a bus in it. We, they gutted out a real plane, put a bus in it, and they could actually drive it down, um, the, you know, Vegas Strip without any wings on it and hit cars and things like that. And That's then the final one, the final one was um, another plane. We had about three real planes, and the final one was the one that crashed into the Sands Hotel, which, um, you know, it's kind of a well-known story, but you know, Sands was going to be blown up. And, um, you know, I, I originally was going to, I wanted to hit the, uh, the casino opposite, the one with the um, uh, volcano. Mm-hmm. Um, and because I wanted, because it had a big lake and I wanted to crash the plane into the lake. I had, and then it go underwater. I had a whole underwater sequence worked out. And then it would hit the volcano and the volcano would explode. And it was all going to happen. And then Steve Wynn, who, who um, ran that, that hotel, showed me around and I saw how the volcano worked and I saw how the water pumps work. I, I saw every aspect of it. We planned it all out. And then he said, just send me the script, you know, and for the final sign-off. So we, I sent him the script. And then we get a call back and say, oh, we, we, you can't crash into our, you know, um, our thing. this script is too... You know, we're a family organization because at that time, Vegas was trying to portray itself as, you know, as a family resort. Right. And uh, so they didn't, you know, the bunch of criminals crashing into the thing was not what their image wanted to be at that time. So he said, sorry, but, you know, we, you can, we can't do it. It's bad for our image. So suddenly I had no location. But then I was reading the L.A. Times um, on a Sunday and I saw they were blowing up the Sands Hotel in a, in a few weeks. So called him up at the last minute and said, look, can you delay blowing up the hotel for a, a couple of weeks while we build a whole set in front of it and put a huge plane on a ram and send it into, you know, into your casino? And they agreed. So, uh, you know, there was a mad rush to build this rig where a full-size plane was rushed down a, a ramp into the uh, Sands Hotel. And as we were building it, they were slowly nibbling away at the back of the casino, knocking more and more of it down until it was just, you know, the front part left. And uh, we finally got it done in time. And it was a one-shot deal. That was yeah. one of those classic Hollywood. You know, I couldn't shoot it in parts like you would normally do with an action film because there was one plane and there was one casino. And once that plane was moving, there was nothing going to stop it. So that's when I had the 17 cameras all hidden in bushes and um, inside the plane and inside the casino. And, um, you know, we... and. Uh, you know, the night came and they closed off the strip and 5,000 people lined up to watch it and they pressed the button, you know, as the sun was coming up and this thing went down the, this 50-ton plane went down the ramp and the, the cable that was pulling it snapped at the last minute and it just stopped on the edge of the um, ramp, on the ramp, and it was teetering. And if it went over, it would smash itself to bits and we couldn't, even in those days, buy another aeroplane certainly not in that time or anything but luckily it just sort of stopped and teetered on the edge and didn't go over so we had to sort of de-rig de-rig all the cameras and come back the next night and set it all up again and uh, but it you know most of those things um were done in camera that the, the corvette hitting the town everything in that sequence is real apart from the act the wide shot of it being dragged through the air because uh, that was kind of 
aerodynamically impossible. It would have just you know, hung down and probably I was wondering about that. Probably crashed the plane or something. So um, that's the only CG shot in the whole thing. Uh, everything else is either real, you know, full size real or miniatures. That's insane. That's absolutely insane. So I have to ask you. I mean, as directors, you know, we always there's always that one day on set that the entire world is coming crashing down around us, and we feel like. We're never going to make it. It sounds like every day was like that for you on Con Air or on many of your other movies. Is there any any days that stood out, a situation where you're like, oh, my God, I don't think we're going to make it through this day? And what was that thing and how did you get over it? And it could be on Con Air or any of your films. Yeah, well, I mean, apart from that one thing there that was was <laughs> – uh, uh, probably, I guess there was – I mean, it did happen a lot, you know, because we were doing complicated – uh, fiddly stuff that was in camera we couldn't fix it with cgi or painting out things. it had to work and I guess there was another um uh incident on Connor, i guess which was the fire truck sequence at the end mm-hmm. that was supposed to be in vegas but i think vegas was so sick of us by that time because we were <laughs> moving from street to street and blowing stuff up and crashing and they said look you know it, they they sort of stopped us giving us permits basically and so we had to sort of scuttle back to um uh la and and i had to sort of do this sequence this fire truck sequence where um you had to hide that it wasn't vegas and i and i couldn't as i said now you would just paint a cgi city behind it so i thought well how can i hide that i'm in la so i thought well we'll do it in a tunnel so i went to the like the the third or fourth street tunnel i can't remember which number is but in uh, downtown la of course there's no tunnel in vegas at that time but you know we we fudged that we say okay this is this is a tunnel and um and i said we'll have the fire truck you know race through this and um and the and the, the city said okay you can have from 10 p.m to um uh midnight because uh in fact no i think it was it was 5 p.m till te- uh, 10 p.m because of the okay. noise and all that something. And uh, so it's basically had five hours to shoot this one big stunt, which was basically Diamond Dog on the motorbike getting dragged into the, uh, well, standing on the back of the fire truck and Nick Cage's um, uh, on a uh, police motorbike. And he rides into the back of the fire truck, jumps on the fire truck, and the motorbike uh, explodes on the back of the fire truck, taking out um, Ving Rames as Diamond Dog. And it was all set up, and um, and the idea was that by this time we were sort of down from the usual seventeen cameras. I only had seven cameras for this, <laughs> so we would get, you know, get to the end of the shoot, and you're starting to run out of money, and and it's a, it's a slightly smaller stunt, but um, it still was a one-off thing. And it was uh, the fire truck going in the tunnel, the, um, the the motorbike being dragged into the back of it on a rig, and then the explosion happening. And I had seven cameras set up, and of course the cameras get set up you know, nice and quickly, they're all in position. But the rig, the complicated rig to do this, we can't start ringing until five o'clock. So, and we have to be off the street by 10. So the special effects guys are building the rig. They're putting the cables in, they're putting the explosions in, the explosives in there. They're, you know, rigging the bike, they're rigging the fire truck. The stuntmen are practicing and, and it's, going, it's going five o'clock, six o'clock, seven o'clock, eight o'clock nine o'clock and we've got to be off by 10 I, every hour i'm going to the special effects are you ready are you ready oh. and uh they said nearly nearly ready and i, I and i swear to god uh, no kidding five to ten <laughs> he said he, uh, he, and we we're supposed to be off at 10 he said okay we're ready and um but and so then all hell breaks loose so 
the camera guys are all over by the coffee truck because they've been standing there, you know, for you know, four and a half hours doing nothing. So they're all eating, you know, donuts and coffee. They're not next to their cameras. And the um guy, the guy, the stunt guy in the fire truck has fallen asleep. We'll be right back after a word from our sponsor. And now back to the show. Because you know, he's been sitting in that truck waiting to go for five hours. And so the AD, the first assistant director, picks up the radio and says down the radio, because we've got five minutes to do this, the radio to the guy, the stun guy, he shouts down the radio, are you ready to go? And the, the stun guy, all he hears is go. Oh, he God. wakes up, pushes his foot on the accelerator and heads off down. And this thing is, a, is all automatic. So once that fire truck's rolling, it's also dragging the uh, motorbike that is rigged to explode when it hits that. There's no stopping it once it's going. So the, so um, I rush over to the monitors and shout to the camera guys, you know, it, it's rolling, it's rolling, you know, go, go, go. So they all start running from dropping their coffee cups everywhere, running to the cameras. And out of the seven, cam- out of the seven cameras, um, uh, some of the, like one gets an operator gets there, but no focus puller. Another one gets the operator and a focus puller. Then there's three cameras that are rigged on the actual truck and the uh, motorbike that are all rigged to one button. And an assistant runs over, presses that button, and those three cameras go. So I go, okay, I've got three automatic cameras. I can see those running on my monitor. I've got one camera on a crane that's that slightly out of focus because there's no camera, um, uh, there's no focus puller on that one. And I've got another guy that has a the operator and a focus. So I've got, I've got that's four good angles. This is going to be all right. Oh, you know, I'm supposed to have seven, but I'll settle for four. And this thing is racing down the road. And at that moment, the, the first assistant runs down the road trying to stop the fire truck going, stop, stop, stop. So the, the assistant camera on the three cameras that were on one button hears the word stop and presses the stop button on the three cameras. Oh, my God. So, so I went from four and a half cameras to now I'm down to one and a half cameras running. And just as he does that, it happens. The, the uh, motorbike hits the fire truck. It explodes. Boom. Shot. I've got, I've got one shot and, and one slightly out of focus shot. And that's what's in the movie. You know, and that's what you have to do. You have to go. You got to roll. Okay. You got to roll with it. Yeah. It's, yeah. It's, and, it's so it's and it. I love hearing stories like this because so many, you know, so many young filmmakers coming up, they just like think, oh, you know, it's Hollywood. There's a big budget movie. Everything's running like a well-oiled machine. <laughs> yeah. Shit happens at oh, every yeah. level all the time yeah. because filmmaking yeah. is one of the most complicated <laughs> situations yeah. and things to put and together. And everything you do is the first time it's been done in that particular configuration. Yeah, we've all done stunts and shots a bit like that, but it's never been done on that street with that amount of equipment and that. Right. And so it's a sort of, handmade everything's handmade each time um you know and and you know you know and it's uh it's difficult it's, it goes wrong you know so let me ask you you've i mean you've directed so many amazing action movies and action sequences in, in, throughout your career what makes a good action sequence like when you're conceiving the 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 construction of an action sequence what is what are some key things that you constantly are looking for when you're building it 
Well, yeah, I get asked that a lot by, you know, young filmmakers coming up who want to know, because they watch a lot of action films and, they, and it's hard to dice, you know, discern what is better about some than others in some ways, or, you know, is it the bigger explosion? Is it the, you know, the, you know, the more hits in the fight? But to me, um, I was telling them that basically with an action series, you've got to tell a story that's, that's within its, the works within itself. So you have a whole film that you t you're telling your story, your beginning, your middle, and your end, but you should do that with every action sequence as well. So you, and make sure the audience understands what's supposed to happen in the action uh, sequence, because I think sometimes people think just like if we shake the camera a lot, if we have a lot of chaos and it just goes on and on and it's really loud, then that will be satisfying. And that to me is not a satisfying action sequence. You know, you want to have a lot of cause and effect because you've got to understand like your hero needs to get from here to there. And these are the obstacles in the way. And, you know, this is the first obstacle that hits him. You know, have you shot this in a way that you, the audience understands what that obstacle is? And then he is clever or physically, you know, has enough prowess to get past that obstacle. Uh, but there's another one coming. Another, and, you you know, do you have three, you have five, depending, you know, what kind of sequences. But the, to me, the cleverer, um, you know, the cleverer those obstacles and the cleverer the way that he overcomes them, uh, the more satisfying it is. But you've got to understand it. That's the thing. You've got to, the audience has to understand, oh, he, he was victorious in that moment. Oh, but uh, okay, but he's not going to be in this because it, I can see why this is difficult. And you know, I think one of the good ones I think I would say for students to watch is is um, Terminator Two. You oh. know, there's there's yeah. some great great um, constructed because um, you know James Cameron is 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 like me. He's a bit nerdy on the technical stuff and likes you know likes how the physics works of an action sequence and how the practical side, like what would happen if a, if a truck flipped on its side like this, how far would it slide if it slid and then it, it, one end of it hit something, how would it spin? And how would, you know, what's a cool way to get out of the way of that thing spinning. And so you, you can use, if you're a bit nerdy about physics, action sequences are great because they're all about cause and effect. And you have the sort of emotional journey of how does a hero overcome it? But you can also have the, for me, it's more like, you know, the, the mechanics as well is the MacGyver of it, you know, it's like set up a problem. How do you fix it? But I think, you know, if you watch something like, you know, the sequences in uh, Terminator 2, that's a really good lesson. And you understand every single thing that happens in it. Nothing's too, you know, obscure or too fast or you don't understand what it happened or, or it happens for no reason, just like there's an arbitrary something arbitrarily explodes for no reason. There's something only explodes if it explains how that thing, you know, you know, right. fired into it and how, why did it catch fire? And then when it caught fire, what did it then do? So to me, if you took out an action sequence out of an action film, you should be able to understand everything that goes on in it. And it could, it could play as a short film. You know, you should be able to take the action sequence out and go, oh, here's my, here's my two minute short film. And, uh, you know, what do you think of the story? And you should understand it. Now, you know, you also worked on uh, another another film called Expendables 2, uh, which, man, when I heard you were on board for the sequel, I was All like, right. this make this makes sense. This makes <laughs> sense. Because I know Sly did the first one. And, yeah. you know, and, and I mean, Sylvester Stallone's a legend. And, you know, as a, a writer, as a director, I mean, he's yeah, yeah. he's a walking legend. How was it? I went, this is the thought that went through my head when I heard you were on it. I'm like, okay, this makes sense. They need someone like Simon to deal with 
the testosterone that's on that set. I mean, I mean, you're talking about Van Damme and Lundgren and Schwarzenegger and Willis and 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 and, and, and Statham and all these guys. How did you approach directing? that kind of i mean some of those guys are absolutely legends and mm. some of them are just just really big action heroes how did you approach because it just seems like so massive and an undertaking just dealing with that and then also trying to tell a good story and also trying to one-up the action of the first one and so on and so forth yeah yeah well i mean the first thing was sort of you know getting past the sly of it all because you know <laughs> i because i you know i I met Sly, you know, and had, you know, had lunch with him. And I said, look, you know, are you okay with me taking over this? Because obviously, you know what you're doing, you know, right. like, and, um, but I think the first one nearly killed him. So, you know, when you, <laughs> That's what he said. you know, if you're writing it, directing it, starring in it, and, you know, it, it's just a lot to do. And, you know, and he's throwing himself at it full. I think he just didn't want to go through that again. And um, he said, no, no, you know, it's your film. You do what you want. And, um, he, you know, so he said, I'm just an actor on this. And so, you know, and I said, look, I don't want to screw up your franchise. You know, I don't want to, you know, you set it up the first one and I come in and, you know, put it, you know, in the trash can. So, you know, it's probably more pressure uh, than, you know, a normal studio hire because, you know, the guy that started it is on the on set every day. But he was really supportive, you know, and he would come on set and go, wow, this is great. This is the best set. This is better than the first one. This is great. And I think he was so relieved not to have to solve all the problems and not have to, you know, do the hours. And, and he enjoyed being an actor on it, you know. And so he he gave a very relaxed sort of funny performance because he was in, enjoying it. And um, and I think, you know, in terms of all the others, you know, there's definitely a pyramid on set with Sly at the top of it. So, you know. I used that kind of the Sly, you know, power to, you know, so it was never a problem because if Sly was happy, everyone was happy because, you know, they all look up to him. He is the godfather, you know, of, of that world. And so he got, he gets a lot of respect for them. We'll be right back after a word from our sponsor. And now back to the show. And so they, they were as good as gold, you know. They were they were like very well behaved, and because because Sly, Sly will slap him around. Sly will slap him around. Yeah, he, you know, he then never had to, but you know the the inference was there that you know if anybody stepped out of line, they were going to get the Sly slap. But um, you know, and then you're going to have you know Rambo, you know, screaming in your face, and uh, you know all these other characters. And Rocky, <laughs> Rocky, yeah. You, I mean, do you want Rocky and Rambo sh- shouting at you in your face? So no, they were they were good, and also they were you know like a lot of like like music bands that you know bands that were big in the eighties and nineties that were coming back right. touring now. They're happy to be back because they probably didn't enjoy it as much as they should have the first time around because they're so busy trying to be successful and trying to deal with a new what's it like being a movie star and all that stuff that they get a second chance to come back and they're going to really enjoy it and appreciate it because they went through all that once, but. The fact to be able to do it again, you know, not many people get to do that in their, you know, later years. The thing that was they did in their yeah, youth that was there, you know, defined them. So they, I think, you know, they were having, you know, a really good time just to, to be doing it again. Um, and so it was, you know, it was fun for them. So, yeah. So you never had an issue because I, I mean, I've, I've heard of other directors who work on sets with directors who they're directing and mm. just as a, alone, let alone 
the person who created everything around it and also a legend and also all this other stuff. So you, it sounds like you never had any slide. Slide was just like, I don't want to deal with it. Just, I just want to do what I do and you have fun. And, and as long well, as I'm, yeah. And, uh, and hopefully, hopefully it was, I was doing a good job and that was mainly what, you know, hopefully it was, he was, you know, uh, why he was, you know, kind and, and respectful was because he could see that it was going well. I mean, I think if I'd been like, you know, oh, screwing yeah. up. I would have heard about it very quickly, but um, yeah, and and also I have found I've directed a few um, you know, uh, uh, directors and producers in the past, and I found actually it, they're actually very easy because um, they know the pain you're going through. The emp they're know, empathetic. They, they go like, you know, I'm not going to give this guy a hard time because I I know what it's like when an actor gives you a hard time. And I know he's got 50 other things on his brain this morning and he's got, you know, budget problems and he's got, he hasn't slept for two months. And so I found people that have been behind the camera uh, actually treat you much better than people who have no idea. And I've done it the same myself when I've got in front of the camera for like little cameos or something um, for other people's films or mine. And I've, and I've looked at the camera and I've looked at the lights and I go, oh my God, how did these actors do it? This is really hard. Oh, you know, and you get, and you get, you know, suddenly you, you cut them a lot more slack because you realize how confusing it is to be on the other side of the camera, staring at 200 people and lights and, you know, and you have no idea who's standing behind you or next to you, or it's very confusing. So I think it goes both ways. So, but uh, I actually, um, I, I directed in uh, General's Daughter, I directed John yeah. Frankenheimer. Oh, you know, yeah. And, uh, you know, who was a hero of mine. And um, he, uh, it was by sheer chance that he, when I was shooting that film on the Paramount lot, we we were doing a night, uh, we built a giant tank. The, the Paramount lot, their whole parking lot is a tank. So what they do mm -hmm. is they tell everyone to not park there anymore. And they have a sky drop behind it. And you can actually flood the whole parking lot. And we were a night shoot. So we built a giant tent over the parking lot and put our, you know, um, Savannah set in this swamp that we built in there and John Travolta's in there having a big fight, you know, and doing water work. And because there was everybody that visited the Paramount lot for a couple of weeks, they see this giant black tent where they used to park. So all they would do, they'd come up to the tent and they'd poke their heads through to see what was going on. So every day there would be different people poking and, you know, like Robert De Niro's head pokes through then, uh, you know, uh, I know, like, like all these, you know, famous actors, producers, everybody wants to know what the hell's going on in this black tent. So we got, I wish I'd taken a camera, you know, set up a time lapse of everybody's <laughs> head coming through this hole. And anyway, one day it was John Frankenheimer and, and he knew Mace Newfelt, the producer. So he came in and had a chat and I was looking at him and he was, and we would, and I needed this one part that was a, 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 a senior general in the army, but it was only one scene. It was only, you know, a one and a half page scene but it the guy had to appear very important and a lot of weight and and it's the sort of thing you do want to call in a favor you know if you're pals with robert de niro or al pacino you go like can you come and do me a favor and do one scene because i need your gravitas and um but i was looking at john frankenheim and he's this statuesque guy he was like six foot five or something and he was very authoritative and he's one of those old school hollywood directors who's a huge shouter and a big you know, and he's done all these amazing films. And I, I thought, well, I wonder if he would do it. And um, so I asked him and he, and he said, uh, yeah, he'd do it. you know, I'd do it. he hasn't really done any acting or much acting, I don't think, but he agreed to do it. And he, he came on set and um, 
got in the uniform and you know had the hair and makeup done he said and you know how do you want to shoot this this page and a half of dialogue this long speech and i said i really want to just do it all in one shot so no cut and he said what no cutting oh my god you know i've got to learn the whole thing i said yeah if you don't mind i don't really want to go cut 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 you know it's really important to be like one shot and so he said oh my god i've got to go and learn this and i said to him i said look i i you know i i hope you you're okay with me directing you because you know this is only my second film yeah yeah and you've you know been winning oscars before i was born and you know so and uh, he said no 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 this is great it's, you know it's your film it's your film and uh, and again on the set as i was directing him in the scene i said look i hope you don't mind me saying but could you just you know move <laughs> over here and do this he said yes 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 no problem and he said gosh it's really weird he said you know all i want to do is please you i've never been in that position before you know because oh, that's he so huge, he's a huge director that everybody wants to please him and he'd never been in the position where he wanted to please someone else so it was very sweet I, and then you know great performance as well great that's that's remarkable is there anything that you wish someone would have told you at the beginning of your career that could have helped you you know that that one little bit of information you're like oh man i wish i would have known this um you know but there's no secret you know magically i think it's it's like with all you know exciting worlds whether you're you know a rock star or a secret agent or you know <laughs> making movies or something i think is to try and appreciate it at the time because all those incredible things you do you're so busy stressing at the time and trying to do it sometimes it's hard to step back and go wow what we're doing is really cool here and this is so i think it's to try and enjoy it along the way um because you're so busy being hard on yourself and I don't know, maybe, maybe that's not possible. Maybe everything would turn out terrible if you did relax and try and enjoy it. But that's what I would have told myself is, look, you know, you, it's, it's probably going to be okay. So why not relax a bit and enjoy it rather than, you know, beating yourself up that you've got to work harder and harder and, you know, and it's, but I haven't, you know, you can't do the experiment the other way and go back and say, like, if you did just kick back a bit and enjoy it, would it, would everything have turned out the same way? I don't know. <laughs> well, that's, and I mean, you were saying that with, you know, like Schwarzenegger and Willis and all these kind of Chuck Norris and all these kind of guys that came back on, on Expendables too, where they just, they probably had a ball because they were probably not stressed. I'm like, I'm not the star of this lies dealing with that. I'm just here to have a good time and shoot some things, say some cool lines and, hang out with my friends, you know, smoke yeah. some cigars. Yeah. And I, I mean, I have to say, I enjoy directing much more now than I did when I started because, because I do, you know, you have less to prove, I suppose, as you go on. Right. And, and also it's like, you've been through all those sticky situations and you usually get out of it somehow. And so there's a, you get a lot more confidence with age and experience. And so I definitely enjoy it now rather before it was like, a task that had to be achieved and to win the fight and get it done. Now you, I can actually enjoy the process. And, uh, you know, so, it, you know, it comes with experience and, and doing it, you know, for a, a while, I suppose. Well, I mean, you've got more than 50,000 hours now, I think. <laughs> this, this well, yeah. And the trick is not to, you know, not to fall out of love with it. I do know some people that, you know, have fallen out of love with it and uh, are really miserable, you know, and, and are miserable to be around on the set because they don't like it anymore and but you know they're sort of wedded to it but i, I think if you don't like it anymore you should, you should definitely stop doing it but because you're making everybody's life misery but um i you know i definitely like it more more i do it so it's you know and i've been it, it know, shows many years and it, so. 
And it shows. It shows in your work that you, you know, the movies that you've stayed consistent since Con Air. I mean, you've been working every, you know, you you pop out, you, your your output is is pretty good. It's not like you do one movie. You're not a Kubrick. You don't do one movie every eight or nine years. I mean, you're, yeah. you, you're constantly working, whether in television or in this, you're always working. So that's, you can yeah. tell that you love what you're doing. We'll be right back after a word from our sponsor. And now back to the show. Yeah, yeah. Well, I, that would be really frustrating. I mean, I'm a huge Kubrick fan. Oh, and so love it. But it would be really frustrating for me to know that I was only going to do a film once every five, six, seven, eight years. That would be, oh, you know, be heartbreaking because there's only so many films you can make in a lifetime. And, you know, sometimes obviously, you know, some are better than others because of whatever reason, but you learn something on every one. And, you know, I think making any film is better than staying at home. You know, <laughs> <laughs> you know you're absolutely right. Yeah. Now, I'm going to ask you a few questions to ask all of my guests, Simon. What advice would you give a filmmaker? trying to break into the business today? I would just say, don't turn any opportunity down. You know, don't be too like, I have to make this kind of film. I have to, because I, you know, I, as I said, I went through all these different types of filmmaking from, uh, you know, current affairs to documentaries, to drama, to, you know, everything, music videos, commercials. And I would say, just try and shoot as much as you can on anything, whether it's on your iPhone or, you know, with friends on, and, any opportunity, a friend says, oh, you know, I want to be an actor, and but I need someone to shoot me doing something. Go and do it. Don't go, well, he's not very good. <laughs> or, you know, um, I haven't got time or I'd rather do this. Any opportunity, do it. Because any connection you make with someone else who's also in that world can leapfrog to another connection. And every anything you shoot um, gives you a little bit more experience. And a little bit more like, oh, I know, you know, like I, I really want to do sci-fi. All I want to do is sci-fi. I'm going to shoot sci-fi. And then someone says, can you come and shoot this little comedy short film for me? And you shoot the comedy. You go, actually, I really enjoyed that comedy. Maybe I'll, maybe I'll do some comedy, you know. So I would just say shoot as much and as often as you can and don't be too precious. Don't sit around for the perfect situation. <laughs> and, you know, and, and work on, on films in any way you can. I mean, I, you know, worked in props and art department and, sound and camera assistant on other people's films for a day here a day there and it's kind of fun it, you get to learn other people's jobs you meet other people and you and work for free so they'll have you you know so they'll have you back or you know they'll there's a reason to hire you it's because you're free you know and um just work as much as you can and and take every opportunity to shoot anything you can what is the lesson uh, that what is the, what is, what did you learn from your biggest failure? Ooh, um, da, da. I mean, what I, I guess what I learned is no failure um, is total. You know what I mean? Is that <laughs> is that every every disappointment or failure, if you want to call it, can be corrected to a certain extent in some way. I mean, that's the beautiful thing about filmmaking, like a sequence, you know, one angle doesn't work, you cut to another angle. One, you know, an actor doesn't, isn't great, uh, you know, in a performance, you can make the performance better through editing. If there's, there's always a way, so I don't think any failure uh, um, is total. And also, you know, there's that whole um, theory that, you know, you obviously don't learn anything until you fail at something, you know, and so, mm -hmm. 
you shouldn't look at the at any kind of failure as a failure. It's more like a you know a learning experience. But also, none of I don't for me I don't know it's lucky or whatever. But I never treat any failure as a total failure. It's it's always can be, you know, dragged back to be a ten percent failure, you know, <laughs> so, yeah. rather than a hundred percent failure. Because you can you can do something to fix most things, you know, situations. Now, what is the lesson that took you the longest to learn, whether in the film industry or in life? Um, I think it's pacing myself. It's like not rushing. Um, you know, the hardest thing in filmmaking and people don't you know, realize it's time management because you can make a fantastic film with unlimited time and it's time. It's not even resources. I mean, if you've got a camera, that's basically what you need and a way of recording the sound. But if you had unlimited time, you could make the world's greatest film if you've got the talent. But, you know, every film you're on is a time pressure. It's like you're constantly doing a deal with yourself. If I, if I take longer on this scene, I've got to take time off that scene. If I, you know, if I rush this scene, it's not going to be, uh, make sense for the story. So I've got to allocate my time. And every minute of a film, uh, you know, a professional film is accounted for. You know, you're supposed to do a certain amount of work per day, you know, per hour, and you have to stick to that plan and that schedule. And that's very hard in an artistic endeavor to be so um, dictated to by time management. And that's the, that's the hardest thing is to, is to get, okay, the discipline of saying I've got it as good as enough because I've got to get on and get all these other things. When really, you know, it's very rare that a director's in the position where he just can keep going and keep going and keep going um, until he's absolutely satisfied because that's not a real world situation. And, uh, you know, that, that's hard, but I mean, the, but the opposite is like, don't be panicking about time or something. So you, I would, is I think I've learned that it's not to rush, um, and take your time because, uh, you know, you can make a bad decision. If you rush, if you just take a couple more beats, you can make a better decision. And, uh, but it's, it's that balance of don't rush, but you still got to hit those time you know, deadlines. <laughs> so you've never, so you've never heard the term, you never heard the sentence ever uttered to you, uh, Simon. All you have is time and money. Have fun. <laughs> that would be nice. Yeah, that would be lovely. <laughs> I mean, yeah, but, I, you know, I have, I do have questions, you know, like that. A producer would, you know, when they're scheduling, whether they say, well, well, how long will it take you to shoot the scene? And I go, well, how long will you give me? Because I could shoot it in two minutes, the length of the dialogue, or I could spend two weeks shooting the most incredible version of this scene with, you know, every conceivable angle and like beautiful lighting and take waiting for the sun to be in the right spot. And I mean, how much will you give me? I'll, you know, I just need as much time as you're willing to give me, you know, and I'll make it work with what you got to a certain yeah. extent. Yeah, yeah. Yeah. And last question, um, three of your favorite films of all time. Ooh, well, I mean, I, I, uh, it's so many, I hate that question because it's three is hard to pin down, but I mean, I do love, um, you know, films that I grew up with and films at different times of my life. So, you know, sort of in my sort of teens, um, there's a film called uh, With Nail and I mm -hmm. uh, with Richard E. Grant and uh, Paul McGann. It's a small comedy about two struggling actors in England. And not many people in America know it because when I do mention it, people go, oh, no, I haven't seen that. But in, mm -hmm. in, in the UK, it's a kind of a cult. You know, okay. I've, been on, I've been on sets in the UK and the camera crew will recite lines 
uh, from the film to you because it's nice. a, it's a cult film. But yeah, so I will, I try and encourage all Americans to see this film because it seems to be very well known in England, but not in the states. But it's called With Nail and I, and then films. You know, I said different stages of my life, and these are not necessarily you know great classics. I mean, I love all the big classics you know the david lean movies and everything like that but that you know everybody does but films that meant a lot to me you know at different parts of my life were things like you know when i was very young uh would be chitty chitty bang bang yeah like the fantasy of that to me is a you know magical magical the six or seven you know old with me of that would thought that was the most magical thing ever and that would that was the sort of thing would get me into filmmaking is the fantasy because to me filmmaking is taking you to another world and i you know because i have to confess i don't make very realistic films you know <laughs> they are, they are not, you know they are quite fantasy and larger than life and operatic because sure. i kind of want to be taken to another place i you know i don't necessarily i mean I, I you know i watch other people's very you know great realistic films and, and love them but my my world is is a bit more um, ridiculous in a way, but um, you know. And so then uh, you know, and then that was you know my five or six year old me getting into film, and then the 12, 13 year old me was a film called Swark Melody, another English film that was written by Alan Parker and directed by Waris Hussein, and produced by David Putnam, and uh, it's a it's a again it's a small film set in a school in London in a kind of a rough part of London. And uh, and it's all um, sort of actors that were eleven and twelve, and it was just my life, you know. So I, it's the first time I went to the movies and didn't see James Bond, you know, jumping off a cliff or you know um, Snow White and the Seven Dwarfs doing something, you know. It, it, this was my life. It was kids at school, but very realistically shot, and they're getting up to all sorts of mischief, and they're really, you know, rude to adults, and they're kind of like, but it's very sweet. And so this is the sweetest soundtrack by the Bee Gees, which is not oh. the strongest point, not its strongest point, but hey, um, the Bee Gees are listen, I have a Bee Gees, they're great, legendary, yeah, they're great. Um, you know, Saturday Night Fever and all that stuff, yes, but not in this one. But, um, <laughs> but the, the rest of the, the film is great. So, I'd have to say, like, three films, they're not, you know, as I said, the big epics, but they meant something to me at different ages, right. uh, in my life, you know, and uh. So that's what they're important to me. So when I say favorite, and I'm going to go now. I'm talking about. I'm going to watch them again now because. <laughs> I mean, you're going. I mean, as you were talking, I'm like, what was the film like when I was coming up, like in eight, eight, nine, ten years old? We'll be right back after a word from our sponsor. And now back to the show. And the obvious one, Star Wars, E.T., all those kind of things. Mm-hmm. But there's something like Never Ending Story by Wolf, yeah. by Wolfgang. You look at that and you're like. At that moment, you know, that was a very powerful movie, you yeah. know, to me and those kind of things. So it, it's, you know, I've heard I've heard the, the greatest, you know, some people are like, oh, I loved Under the Dragon. And I'm like, I, <laughs> loved, I loved Under the Dragon, too. But is that on your top three? It's like it is. It meant a lot to me when I saw it when I was yeah. 12. Things exactly. like that. So yeah. it doesn't all have to be Godfather. <laughs> exactly. I mean, I've watched Godfather, you know, I don't know how many thousands. I got it on every format ever made, you know, and, and I still watch it on TV with the commercials when it comes on, you know. Because we're ridiculous. How? Why do we do that when we could literally just get up, grab our Blu-ray, yeah. plug it in? And I, that's happened to me multiple times. And I'm like, why am I? I, I mean, it's just yeah. too lazy to get up. <laughs> Well, it's such a good film. You don't want to waste that 30 seconds of it. So, exactly. so yeah, those, those those epics are fantastic. But I think a film that means something to you and also 
that probably led you know people like you and me into the business mm-hmm. you know means, means even more because it's you know it's what we ended up doing so simon it has been an absolute pleasure and honor talking to you my friend uh, i know i can talk to you for at least another five or six hours uh, oh. but i appreciate your time and thank you so much for coming on the show and sharing your your knowledge and your experiences with the tribe today and uh continued success my friend i can't wait to see your next one so thank you so you're much welcome. my friend you're welcome lovely to talk to you i truly want to thank simon for coming on the show and sharing his knowledge with the tribe. Thank you so, so much, Simon. If you want to get links to anything we spoke about in this episode, head over to the show notes at bulletproofscreenwriting.tv forward slash 329. Thank you so much for listening, guys. As always, keep on writing no matter what. I'll talk to you soon. Thanks for listening to the Bulletproof Screenwriting Podcast at bulletproofscreenwriting.tv. 